everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hillspring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. Um, tell me without telling me, right? Like you're, you're giving a description of something so I can say some things that would be identifiable. So, for example, tell me you're from Oklahoma without saying, hey, I'm from Oklahoma. So some of those things would be like, I properly know how to pronounce Tahlequah. It's funny to watch people from outside Oklahoma try to say Tahlequah, you know, or Dakota, right? Or Bug Tussle. Anybody from Bug Tussle? Anyway, tornadoes. Yes, scissor tail, right? Bedlam, Ooh, okay. Um, you use a phrase or a word that's identifiable, so tell me you're without, tell me, okay? A few more examples, tell me. Um, you're an OSU fan without telling me you're an OSU fan. Grief, agony, gnashing of teeth, you know. Tell me you're from Hillspring Church without telling me you're from Hillspring Church. Um, you know more about pro wrestling than you ever wanted to know. I mean, that's a thing, right? Dream team. And now you're in the loop. That's the thing, right? So uh, you're either comfortable on Sunday mornings or you're dressed for a blizzard. One of the two is kind of your comfort zone, right? We have first Wednesday. So you're going to see this kind of come into play this morning in Daniel chapter 8, where it's kind of like, I'm going to tell you without telling you, you you'll, you'll see that unfold. So in 2001, my dad bought a three-quarter ton Ford Power Stroke four-door diesel. I kind of want to go full Tim Allen. Oh, yeah. Oh, Mark. Oh, oh. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, dad had, like, normally he was a half-ton kind of guy, but this was dad's first diesel. Oh. When he passed away, uh, my mom had no need for a three-quarter ton diesel power stroke Ford four-door pickup, right? So my brother bought it, and Brian actually drove it for, I don't know, he drove it for about 10 years or so, and then he sold it to the neighbor, and it just sat outside, and my brother just grieved, like I'm pretty sure he wept that that pickup was just sitting outside. So one day he called me, he's like, hey, I've convinced my neighbor to sell you that pickup, I'm like, I'm wasn't really buying a pickup, but okay, here we go. So I think I'll buy it. And, and I still have that pickup today. It's a 2001. I'm from the country, and I love my truck. That's just, just how we do. One day, I was driving, and my brother, ironically, was, was with me, and you could really start to smell diesel, just the smell of diesel really, really strong. And my brother said, well, I bet that there's your flush valve. And I'm like, I'm driving a pickup, not a toilet, which all you've Chevy people can make your Ford jokes right there. It's fine. I'll beat you to it. But apparently there is this flush valve that sits on top of the bowl. I know it doesn't help with the joke, right? But like you can flush diesel fuel. Some of you understand what I'm talking about. Some of you have no idea. So I, I Googled it, and sure enough, I saw this uh, YouTube video, and I said to myself, I said, self, I think I can fix that. So I went to the dealer and I got the part, got to working on it, realized I was missing a very specific socket, a very specific tool to do that, so I made my second trip to the parts store. It's actually good for me. Normally it takes about four to get everything I need, so I, I'm, I'm ahead of money right here, right? So with the guidance of some YouTube mechanic named Bill, right, I was able to successfully place the flush valve on my three-quarter ton power stroke four-door, oh, yeah, F-250 pickup, right? My friends, that day, a switch flipped on side of me with a little prayer, a couple of trips to a parts store, and some help from Bill on YouTube. 
I can fix almost anything within reason, right? So let's be honest in here. I want you to participate for just a second. Has anyone in here used a YouTube tutorial to fix or build something? Put your hands in the air like you just don't care, right? As we have ventured through the book of Daniel, we're now to Daniel chapter 8, and in our Bible study, we're now into the second half of the book of Daniel, which is substantially different than the first half of the book of Daniel. And so the first six chapters of the book of Daniel were historic, and this is what I want you to see just in an overview of the first six chapters of Daniel, that God would use a dream, a vision, and he would give a prophecy Many times Daniel was the person to interpret that dream and say, this is what's going to happen, and this is what's important. God prophesied it, he gave the prophecy, and it happened. That's the important lesson to take away from Daniel chapter 1, is that God said something was going to happen, and it did. You need to carry that. If God says something, it's going to happen, because that, that, that theme of the first half of Daniel, the reason why it's there is to tell you and I as readers and believers that if God says something, it's going to happen. Baby, you can take it to the bank. And so as we're into this second half of Daniel, it's about dreams and revelations that Daniel had. Some of it had to do with things that would have been prophesied by Daniel and he would see it come to pass. Okay? So it's history for us, but it was prophecy for Daniel. Some of those things Daniel saw would be prophesied and they have yet to come to pass, so it is still prophetic for you and I, and we're just doing our best to kind of grind through some really unique stuff and interesting stuff. We're going to read a lot of verses again today that's just kind of how Daniel unpacks. I want you to read and see the dream and the revelation that's taking place, but before we get to Daniel chapter 8, I want to take a pit stop. I want to back up in history a couple of hundred years to the book of Isaiah, and I want, to, I want to show you something in Isaiah chapter 7. You don't need to turn there. I'll put it up on the screen. If you're a Bible bringer, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 8 in just a second. So in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1, it says, When Ahaz, he's King Ahaz, and I'll unpack that, the son of Jotham and the grandson of Uzziah, he was king of Judah, okay? King Rezin of Syria, King Pekah, son of Ramallah, and the king of Israel set out to attack Jerusalem, and I know the way that's worded, it's kind of confusing because it treats them like all three of them are together, but that's not the case. You have King Ahaz, and then you have King Rezin of Syria, and then King Pekah of Israel. They're kind of teaming up together to attack King Ahaz in Jerusalem. However, they were unable to carry out their plan. So, historical context, the children of Israel, all the descendants of Abraham, Used to be one nation under David and Solomon. Now they're two separate nations. You had the nation of Israel to the north and the nation of Judah to the south. For the most part, they got along. Sometimes they were allies. Sometimes they squabbled a little bit. Sometimes they didn't do so good and they would kind of fight against each other. Isaiah chapter 7 is one of those seasons where they're not getting along. And Israel has gone and found an ally in Syria or the Assyrians. And they are now trying to march on their cousins, if you will, down in the nation of Judah. And that's the story that's going on in Isaiah chapter 7. If you're with me, say amen. Because this is the easy part. Just telling. All right, so verse 2. The news had come to the royal court of Judah 
Syria is allied with Israel against us, so the hearts of the king and the people trembled with fear like trees shaking in a storm. Very stressful situation. It's not just one nation, it's two nations are coming together to attack them. Then, verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, so Isaiah was the prophet of the day. Just like Daniel was the prophet of his time, Isaiah was the prophet of the day. And God speaks to Isaiah. He says, I want you to go to King Ahaz. He says, take your son, Shir Jeshub, and go to meet King Ahaz. Now, King Ahaz was not really a godly king. Matter of fact, in the other places in the Old Testament, like Chronicles and in 2 Kings, it describes him as a king that did not do what was pleasing to the Lord. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So he wasn't a good king. Judah was the more spiritual of the two nations. They had far more good kings than Israel. Israel didn't have any. All of the kings of Israel were just, the Bible says that they did not do what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay? So Ahaz, um, he's not really a godly king, but God is, is protecting him and he's protecting his people of Judah. That's what's going on in this story. All right? And what we're going to read in verse 14 is one of the more famous prophecies found in Scripture. Okay, you, like, I think you're going to recognize it, so I'm going to unpack that. Verse 14, going to jump down just a little bit. All right then, the Lord himself will give you, King Ahaz, he will give you a sign. Look, the virgin, can also be translated the young girl, will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, is an immediate prophecy to King Ahaz that Assyria and Israel, they're not going to win. God said, I'm going to protect you, and let me give you a sign. This is how you can know, this is from the Lord, there will be a young woman, she will get pregnant, she will give birth to a son, unknowingly, she will name him Emmanuel, okay? But when you, when you read this prophecy, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what I recall that prophecy being about, and, and you're right. It is one of the more famous prophecies found in all of the Bible, but it's not famous because God was speaking to Ahaz. It's famous because it's found in the Christmas story, in the birth of Jesus. Let me show you, Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew's telling of the birth of Jesus, verse 20, it says, talking about Joseph, as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, Joseph... Son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, for she will have a son, you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophets. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. That's why... That verse, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that's why it sounds so familiar to us. It's because we read it every year at Christmas time when we're telling the Christmas story. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. So Isaiah chapter 7 had what we would call a near fulfillment. So um, some of us that have some gray associated with our lives, we grew up on a little show called Sesame Street. Can you tell me how to get, how to get to? Some of the young kids are like, no. Sorry, I am smart because I grew up watching Sesame Street and Mr. Snuffleupagus. One of my favorite characters, Grover. And Grover would do this little skit to help you and I understand the meaning of words and distance. 
And Grover would get up real close in the camera, and he would go, here. And then he would go right back, and he would go, and then, here. I'm not going to do far again. Like, you get the point. Anybody remember that? Yeah, all the cool people in the room. Okay. Scripture has a Sesame Street Grover-esque element to it. When dealing with some of the prophecies in Scripture, they have what's called a dual fulfillment. Or there's dual prophecy to them. Some of them have a year fulfillment. And some of them have another fulfillment to come, which would be a far fulfillment. Okay, this this prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 7, it had a near fulfillment. Most of the scholars believe that there was a young woman of King Ahaz's royal court. She got married, and the young girl conceived a child without knowing that prophecy had been given. She named him Emmanuel. All of that was done as a sign to prove to King Ahaz that God is with us. Go to the next slide, if you will. And so you will see that there's this dual prophecy that sometimes it has an immediate fulfillment that goes with it, what we would call a near fulfillment, and then sometimes there is a second fulfillment to take place far. And today, in Daniel chapter 8, you're going to understand why would God do that. Now, I sometimes, like, I'm the guy that when I'm listening to someone preach, I just, in my mind, I ask a lot of hard questions. And I assume that that's how some of you. And so when I look at this, like the skeptic in me would go, well, it's real easy to say that there's two fulfillments. Like when you take, for example, Isaiah chapter 7, it'd be real easy for them to just grab that scripture to say a young woman got pregnant and it not only was fulfilled there, but you're just, you're just laying that on top of Jesus to say that the Messiah was prophesied, okay? I think as we look at Daniel chapter 8, you're going to understand why God would have prophecy with dual fulfillment where there's an immediate near fulfillment, but yet there is a day and time coming when that prophecy will come to pass, all right? There's multiple dual fulfillment prophecies found in Scripture. Isaiah chapter 9 has one, Joel chapter 2 has one. There's a lot of them throughout Scripture, and you're going to see in Daniel chapter 8 that one of those comes into play. So let's go there. Daniel chapter 8 just bear with me. I'm going to read a lot of verses. I'm going to stop and unpack some of them. But then I'm just going to kind of read a big chunk and then come back and tell the story. That, that's just the way Daniel kind of unfolds. All right? So Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. During the third year, we'll talk about that, of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision. Last weekend, chapter 7, he had his first vision. Now he's saying, listen, this is another vision following the one that I'd already had. Verse 2, in this vision I saw, or I was at the fortress of Susa in the province of Elam, standing beside the river Ule, or the Ule River. Okay, keep in mind, the first six chapters of Daniel were chronological. They happened in a timeline. When we get to chapter 7, it changed, like it, it's no longer chronological. It actually backs up in the timeline. Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 8 take place between Daniel chapter 4 and chapter 5. Okay? So the chronology ends at 6, and now we're going back into the timeline. So this is roughly about the same time as Daniel 4 and 5. Last week, Daniel 7, he said, in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. Here, chapter 8, he just said, in the 
third year of Belshazzar's reign, I had another vision. So he's had two visions, and they're two years apart, okay? The Ule River runs into the Euphrates River, but it comes out of Persia. A lot of times it would be referred to as the Persian River, and I don't think it necessarily plays any significance into the vision. Some people say that it does. So verse 3. As I looked up, I saw a ram with two long horns standing beside the river. And I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to read. Bear with me. One of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other one. The ram butted everything out of the way to the west, to the north, to the south, and no one could stand against him or help his victims. He did as he pleased and became very great. While I was watching, suddenly a male goat appeared from the west, crossing the land so swiftly. We're going to focus on swiftly in a minute that he didn't even touch the ground. This goat, which had one very large horn between its eyes, headed towards the two-horned ram that I had seen standing beside the river, rushing at him in a rage. The goat charged furiously at the ram, and it struck him, breaking off both his horns. Now the ram was helpless, and the goat knocked him down and trampled him. No one could rescue the ram from the goat's power. Verse 8. The goat became very powerful, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. In the large horn's place grew four prominent horns pointing in the four directions of the earth. Then from one of those prominent horns came a small horn. We're going to talk about this one. Whose power grew very great. It extended toward the south and the east, specifically towards the glorious land of Israel. Its power reached to the heavens where it attacked the heavenly army, throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling them. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him by destroying his temple. The army of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion, so the daily sacrifice was halted and the truth was overthrown. The horn succeeded in everything it did. What in the spicy bean burrito is going on here? Like what did Daniel eat that night before he went to bed? Somebody help me. And I get Daniel, like if you ever do those year reading plans, or you're like, well, I just, I want to, I got a cousin named Daniel, I'm going to read this book, he's named Daniel, and you like read, like you get, you're like, I, I don't even know. It's tempting to do that, like horns and hairy goats, and I, I don't even know. I mean, at this point, if you're here, you know we're walking through this book of Daniel. I mean, we've seen weird things like four-headed leopards, and funky monsters with ten horns and a talking little horn and golden statues and fire pits. Like, if you keep coming back week after week at this point, you know what you're going to get. Like, it's kind of on you. Like, you showed up today, you know it's going to be some kind of funky horn monster that's here. And so we're going to do our best to kind of unpack it, okay? Keep in mind, Daniel was the interpreter of dreams, especially in the first six chapters. King Nebuchadnezzar would have a dream, Daniel could tell him, what it meant. Belshazzar say all the handwriting on the wall. Daniel can tell him what it meant. Last week, Daniel needed help understanding the dream. This week, again, Daniel's trying to process. He doesn't understand. He's going to have to have help to understand what he saw. If you're still with me, say, I am. All right, here we go. Verse 15. As I, Daniel, was trying to understand the meaning of this vision. <laughs> I don't know, a ram lost his horns, a goat knocked somebody down. I don't even know. Someone who looked like a man, keep in mind, throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel sees things that he doesn't really understand what he's seeing. 
And so he will use the phrase, it was like. It was kind of like a man, but it wasn't. It was like an animal with horns, but it was like. So there was this, like a man that stood in front of me, and I heard a human voice calling out from the Ule River, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of his vision. My friends, this is the first time in Scripture we actually see a good angel that is given the name of Gabriel. And the reason why I clarify it that way is because, just kind of take a little sidebar for just a second, in the book of Isaiah, which happened several hundred years before Daniel came along, in the book of Isaiah, there is a story about Lucifer. Now, we know Lucifer is bad, boo, he's on the bad team. Like, he is the bad guy of the story, right? And there's not a lot of theology or there's not a lot of biblical study about Lucifer. We just have a couple of stories. Jesus tells one, and then there's one in the Old Testament that, and this is what we kind of put together. I won't fight you on this. If you won't think something else, you go ahead. You have absolutely the right to be wrong. It's fine. I don't care. But we think Lucifer was one of the three highest created angels. There was Gabriel and Michael that you'll see in the book of Daniel. But then in Isaiah, there's this story that Lucifer, who was one of those three created beings, he kind of thought, anything you can do, I can do better. And so he said to himself, I'm going to set my throne above God's throne. I'm going to set my stars above God's stars. And God's like, oh, no, you ain't. And, And the story tells us, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. So Lucifer and a third of the angels that bought into his deception were kicked out of heaven. So Lucifer was named, but now this is the first place in the Bible where one of the good guys is given a name, one of the good angels, and he's given the name of Gabriel. All right? Verse 17. As Gabriel approached the place where I was standing, I became so terrified. Can you imagine, like, this massive angelic being? (laughs) I'm sorry. You know, I became so terrified that I fell with my face to the ground. Son of man, he said. You must understand that the events you have seen in your revision relate to the time of the end. Pay attention to that. Time of the end. It's an interesting take on just the ending of that sentence. Time of the end. This is one of those moments we think has a dual fulfillment. Okay? So, verse 17, I think... He is answering a question that was asked in verse 13. In Daniel's vision, he sees these guys and they're talking and he's overhearing their conversation. And this is the question that gets asked in verse 13. So then I heard two holy ones talking to each other. One of them asked, how long will the events of this last? How long will the rebellion that caused desecration stop the daily sacrifice? How long will the temple and heaven's army be trampled on. Wouldn't argue about it, but most likely, verse 17 is answering the questions that were asked in verse 13 as to how long. So this means, when he says this is the end, he means the end of this season. The season I'm telling you about is going to get really, really, really weird, and it's going to get really hard, and, and some things are going to happen in Jerusalem, and the, the temple is going to have some desecration going on. There is an end to that season but it's also one of those dual fulfillments because there is also at the end of time. 
But at this place, we believe verse 17 is talking about this season that will have the near fulfillment, okay? A couple more verses, let's just unpack. Verse 19, then he said, I'm here to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. What you have seen pertains to the very end of time. So a minute ago, it was just the end of days or the end of time, but now he's saying at the very, like this is the end of the end of time. The two-horned ram represents, the male goats represents the king of Greece. Excuse me, I missed the line. The two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece. The long horn between his eyes represents the first king of the Greek empire. By the way, his name was Alexander the Great. The four prominent horns that replace the one large horn shows that the Greek empire will break into four kingdoms, but it'll never be as great as it was under Alexander the Great, okay? So even though there will be four kingdoms that come out of the Greek empire, it will never be as strong as it was under Alexander the Great. Verse 23, at the end of their rule, when their sin is at its height, a fierce king, a master of intrigue, will rise to power. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause shocking amounts of destruction and succeed in everything he does. He will destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people. Like he's going to do things of atrocity to the people who are descendants of Abraham. Verse 25, he will be a master of deception and he will become arrogant. He will destroy many without warning. He will even take on the prince of princes in battle, but he will be broken, though not by human so this is what we saw, okay? We saw a ram that had two horns. One horn was longer, okay? And that is the Medo-Persian Empire. We've already talked about it. On, on Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he had the, the head of gold that represented the Babylonians. Then you had the chest and arms of silver. The Medes and the Persians would come together. They would defeat Babylon. But here it says one of the horns is longer. That a Medo-Persian Empire eventually just became the Persian Empire, meaning that the Persian side of it would become dominant, okay? So, then verse 21 talks about a shaggy male goat. I, I find this so interesting because that's what they called me in high school. Shaggy, no, that's not Just seeing if you're still awake. The shaggy male goat would represent the Greek empire. And the first Greek emperor was a guy by the name of Alexander the Great. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when, when Daniel had that same prophecy about the beast. Look at verse five. While I was watching, suddenly a male goat appeared from the west, crossing the land so swiftly. It's interesting that God prophesied through Daniel the effectiveness of the Greek army. Alexander the Great had just mobilized. They were so fast. They would just overwhelm the people they were conquering. The story goes that Alex the Great actually wept because he had conquered all of the known world. There was nothing left for him to conquer. He had mobilized this fast and vast, great army. But Alex will die. Alexander the Great, when he dies, he does not have an heir to his throne. So he takes the mighty Greek empire and he divides it into four sections. He takes four of his best generals, okay? And each one of them get, and that's what this dream is about, is that one horn dies, and then now there's four horns that point in all different directions. And so I'm going to walk through shaggy goat's four horns, all right? The first horn, or the first Greek general that took over, 
was Cassander, and he took over the, basically the area of Greece, Macedonia and Greece. The second horn was a general by the name of Lysimachus, and he took over a place called Thrace, in Asia Minor and ancient history. Today, we would call that Bulgaria and Turkey, okay, Lysimachus. The third one would actually become the more famous one because of the area he went to. His name's Ptolemy. It, it looks like Ptolemy, but it was just this P's silent, Ptolemy. And he would go to Egypt. And the reason why he would become one of the more famous ones is just because the Egyptians did a really good job with crafting their history and telling his story, okay? And then the fourth one who we're really going to drill in today was a guy by the name of Seleucus. And he went to Syria, Mesopotamia, and eventually had part of the Middle East, specifically where Israel is. Remember in the prophecy, he talked about he's going to just do evil things to God's holy people, okay? So at Seleucus, I want to fast forward in history a pretty good little chunk of time and go seven descendants later to another guy by the name of Seleucus, okay? Not not the first one, not the one that Alex gave a fourth of his kingdom to. I want to go to a guy by the name of Seleucus IV Philippator, okay? And, and he, he only reigns for just a little bit because he had a pesky little brother. Does anybody have a pesky little brother? You know what I'm saying? Okay, this pesky little brother was like evil on steroids. So when Seleucus died, and we think that his little brother actually had him murdered, not only did his little brother kill Seleucus, but he also killed all of his heirs because little brother actually wanted the power. He wanted to be the king. This takes place about 175 years before Jesus, 175 B.C. And little brother is named Antichus IV Epiphanes. Okay? Only going to say it once. No, I'm just kidding. Antif Antichus IV Epiphanes. Okay? So he's now the eighth ruler in these descendants. Okay? Murdered older brother, murdered his heirs so, so he could be in power. He was a treacherous ruler. Okay? He did unimaginable things to the people that he ruled. The story goes he really wanted to reach over into Egypt where Ptolemy's kingdom or the Egyptian empire was going, but he just didn't have the muscle. He didn't have the horsepower. So instead, he got up as close as he could, and he really, he spent a lot of time in the Middle East, and he was just brutal to the children of Israel and the people that lived in that area. And one of the things that he would do, he forced them to disobey their religious laws. It was just a way of just showing, I'm dominant. I'm going to make you disobey your gods. I'm going to make you defile your religious systems. He forced the Jews to make unclean sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem. He forced them to disobey their religious laws. For example, God had said, listen, there are some foods that are clean. We use the term kosher. Jewish people still abide by that diet. And there are some foods that Jewish people would consider unclean. Okay, Swine, pigs, bacon is what they would consider unclean. What solutions, what this dude did, antithesis, what he would do was he forced them to sacrifice pigs and the flesh of pigs on the holy altar in the temple in Jerusalem. This dude is definitely on Santa's naughty list. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's just bad. His name, Epiphanes, he gave himself that name. It means illustrious one. 
Okay? I mean, obviously, it's self-titled. When he had coins minted with his picture on it, he titled himself God Manifest. Antiochus IV Epiphanes means illustrious one. But everybody else had a nickname for him. The Jews had a nickname for him. Antiochus Epimenes. And that means crazy man. Like, that's what they called him. Like, this dude is a madman, all right? And so if you're just reading through the Bible and you, and you read what goes on in, in chapter 7 where there's four beasts and the little talking horn and, and we talked about the Antichrist coming out of the Roman Empire and then you get to Daniel chapter 8 and you don't, you don't really, Jesus, just fix my finances. You know, you're, like it's just tempting to just kind of read this and gloss over a little bit. It really gets confusing between what's going on in Daniel 7 and the Antichrist and what's going on in Daniel chapter 8 with this Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? Verse 25, he will be a master of deception. He will become arrogant. Well, it sounds like the Antichrist. He will destroy many without warning. He will even take on the prince of princes in battle, but he'll be broken, though not by human hands. That, that just sounds, it can be confused as the Antichrist, but it's not. Let's not be confused with what we saw. Last week, we saw the Antichrist was that mouthy little horn that came off of that beast. This is the madman. Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, he is Greek, the Antichrist is Roman, okay? Everybody take a deep breath, let it out, very calm, take a break in a second, I know this is a lot. Did you hear about the guy who made a car out of boards? It wouldn't start, thank you very much, I had a tension breaker, that just had to happen, you know what I'm saying, he's like... You got epiphanies, and I don't even know what's going on, right? Okay. Kind of, we're done with all the history. What's the, like, God, what's the point? Trust me. I ask myself that all week long. God, what? can we just skip it, you know? What's the point? What, why do you and I, as readers, have Daniel chapter 8 in our biblical canon that we can, I mean, I understand Daniel in the lion's den. I understand Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, but what, what is horns, and especially if they've already come to pass, like, God, why, why did you even put Daniel chapter 8 in here? Remember, the first six chapters of Daniel were prophesied, and they came to pass, establishing the pattern that if God says something is going to happen, baby, you can take it to the bank. It's going to happen. That carries over into the second half of Daniel where God says things are going to happen, and some of them have. They're already history, but some of them have yet to happen. But if God says something's going to happen, baby, you can take it to the bank that you and I can know it is going to be. What's going on in Daniel chapter 8 is a literature term called foreshadow. I know, it feels like you're sitting in high school, history, and now I'm bringing literature into it. But foreshadowing is a warning, it's an indication that something in the future is going to happen. Daniel chapter 8 is a foreshadow. Now, try one more time to not confuse you. Daniel saw the ram with two horns, which was the Medo-Persian Empire. He saw the hairy goat, which was the Greeks that trampled them. One horn died, which is Alexander the Great. The four horns come to power. The Greek Empire is divided up into four. Eventually, eight rulers down from Seleucus comes this really bad guy. 
He does detestable things. He forces the Jewish people to desecrate the temple by offering swine on their altars. He forces them to set up idols to their God. All of that came to pass. Daniel didn't see it. It was prophecy for him. But you and I, when we look back, it has already happened. It is history. It has happened. But then there's this thing of dual prophecy, that there's a near fulfillment, but there's also a far fulfillment. I believe that Daniel chapter 8 is a foreshadow. Antiochus is a how-to YouTube video. He is showing us what to expect when the Antichrist comes. We use this term typology, okay? Meaning there are people in the Old Testament that did things that would look like Jesus. They're not Jesus. They weren't divine. They weren't the Son of God. But, but they would kind of give a foreshadow of some things we could expect from the Messiah. Expect from Jesus. Adam, he is a typology of Jesus. In the New Testament, talks about the first Adam and the second Adam. The second Adam being Jesus. Then there's Noah. Noah saved all of humanity through his ark. That is a foreshadow. That's a typology of Jesus. Jesus would be a version of Noah because he would provide an opportunity for salvation to all of humanity who would call upon the name of the Lord. They would be saved. Moses is a typology of Jesus. Moses would deliver God's people out of Egypt. Jesus would deliver God's people from the burden of slavery of sin. Somebody ought to say amen. David is a typology of Jesus because David would be a king. Jesus is an eternal king that will rule and reign. David is not Jesus. David is not divine like Jesus. He is just a typology. What I want you to see about Antiochus, the evil, is he is a typology of the Antichrist that is to come. Okay? What God is saying is, I'm going to show you in history what you can be looking for. I'm going to show you this talking little horn, what, what, what he's going to look like. You thought Antiochus IV was bad? Baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. He's only an example of what this world will see at the end of days when the Antichrist comes on the scene. You want to know what the Antichrist is going to look like? Antiochus IV, but put him on evil steroids. And so the reason why we have dual fulfillment prophecy is so God could give you and I an example of what to be looking for in the end times. Let me show you what this is going to look like, is what he's saying. Let me show you how to fix your Ford pickup. Let me give you a scene, a scenario, a person that is a typology of what is to come. Please say amen if that makes sense. Whew, first service just looked at me like I got no idea. I'm lost. I'm almost done, baby. Verse 13. Then I heard the two holy ones talking to each other. One of them asked, how long will the events of the vision last? How long will the rebellion that causes desecration, okay? How long or is that going to go on in the temple? How long are they going to stop the daily sacrifice? How long will the temple and heaven armies be trampled on? Antiochus IV did all of that. He made them sacrifice pigs in the temple. He made them put up idols of his God and be worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is talking, and they come to him and go, Jesus, what should we look for? What, what are the end times? What, what are they going to look like? 
What's it going to be? And this is what Jesus says in verse 15. The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. And Matthew adds this. Hey, reader, pay attention. When you see that, it's about to get gnarly. Jesus affirms what Daniel said in Daniel chapter 8. So, so listen to me. Daniel prophesied this. He had the dream. He prophesied it. Antiochus IV fulfilled it. And then Jesus went back and grabbed that prophecy and he brought it back to life. Jesus said, listen, listen, Antiochus IV was a really bad dude, but he ain't, you ain't seen nothing yet as to what the Antichrist is going to look like. Antiochus was just an example of what is coming. He is God's way of saying, let me show you what you're looking for. God wanted to make sure that his people would be aware of what was coming. And that's why you and I should pray and give and go and make sure our lost friends and family members, make sure they hear the gospel, make sure we do our best to fulfill the Great Commission so we can see as many people surrender their life to Jesus and be changed by the power of the gospel. Because I'm telling you what I believe, I believe that someday that eastern sky is going to open up and you're going to hear the sound of this glorious trumpet and you're going to see Jesus up in the air and those who are dead in Christ, like my daddy and my grandparents and John Hamilton, it says the dead in Christ will rise. This old dirt, dead earthly body will be resurrected and those who are still alive, we will meet them in the air and we will be caught up to meet Jesus. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.